You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, their lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we have Zenit Kastanik, and we chat about life in Singapore, working in the world-famous 28 Hong Kong Street, and his role in Proof & Company. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So, enjoy. My name is Denek Kastanek. I'm a general manager at uh, Proof & Company for Singapore, Macau, and Hong Kong, as well as a bartender at 28 Hong Kong Street. Although I don't pull as many shifts as I used to, I still uh, shake time to time with, with the team. Cool. Thank you very much for coming here to MO. Uh, it's fantastic to have the chance to talk to you today. We have a lot of ground to cover because you're a very interesting individual. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about uh, what is it that uh, you do? And then later we'll get into how you got to this uh, position in your life. Okay, well, start with the end of it, I guess, or the current end. It's um, I'm working for Proof & Company or the wider, the Proof Collective. My main work and mostly what I'm focusing on is a Proof Company a distribution consulting side of our business. And so we have offices uh, from New Zealand to Australia, China, obviously Singapore, Hong Kong, and Macau, where Singapore was our home. And we focus on bringing a craft and unique and, and, and fun spirits we all like um, into this part of the world. Seven years ago when we started, most of the major suppliers would not bring in even the staple products which you would know uh, from London or Sydney, etc. They would really bring only the base range. And so when we opened 28 Hong Kong Street, the back bar had 36 suppliers to bring all of the products in and that only covered a half or so of it. The second half had to be purchased retail on eBay and, and other Amazon and so on um, websites and air freight to Singapore, pay the tax and uh, and then put it on a back bar. So definitely not the cheapest way of putting your back bar together, but that was a key element to 28. And, and, and that's kind of how the whole idea of bringing spirits and, and the equipment, which bartenders in great cities of cocktails are used to, uh, to this part of the world. Proof and Company kind of came about as an idea. Why would we just bring spirits for us to 28 why don't we bring extra cases of each of the item and 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 kind of offer it to all of the other bars around when you came to the singaporean market were there any major competitors or well tippling club was was here and 28 was i think was just about to be one year old when i got here Uh, michael callahan and i have friends we met together at the famous infamous 42 below world cup in new zealand um i was bungee jumping the bungee jumping one I was representing UK, I was representing United States, and we hit it off and we became good friends and, and, and had a good laugh. We were the first man standing in the morning and last man standing in the night. And being in New Zealand in such a competition, it's just, you know, it's hard to sleep, you know, it's, it's, it seems like a waste of time. And so from there, I went back to London, Michael went back to San Francisco, he moved few months after that here, open 28. And when 28 was probably a few months, six months old, we started talking about would I come over and uh, help him out with 28 and with the team. And I said, yes. And then so when I moved and when I, when I signed the contract, etc., that's when the proof and company idea started to be on, on paper. And so the team here, the three founders that Michael briefed me on, and they thinking about doing something like proof and company, which was great and exciting because I was always kind of excited about any kind of education within our industry and the idea of being part of a team at 28 and passing on everything I have learned uh, through my career and opening uh, an education-focused uh, supplier of craft and these spirits sounded great. I think it's very 
interesting to see where you are now, but I think it'd be also very interesting to see how you got this place. Do you have any memories about what got you into bartending? Or? Well, I don't have a memories of it because I was very young. But I can assume that because of my dad being in the industry for a long time, he used to run small hotels in around Highlands, where I'm from. We do have a, I guess you can call it a ski resort where I grew up, but there's no, don't think of a big lift, ski lift, and etc. It's more of a, a cross-country skiing and, and, and short downhill slopes. But he uh, would be in that industry forever and ever. So I grew up running around the hallways and bars and restaurants ever since I can remember. Um, so I guess that's left something in me. Uh, again, growing up in a small town, just after the time when the Berlin Wall fell off, uh, fell down, fell off, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that that kind of assured that I would grew up on home cooked meals. There was no delivery, uh, there was no pizza delivery, so everything I would eat was home cooked. And so you know, I always liked the idea of cooking. And so, as I said, my dad, being in the industry, he helped me out to get a stage as a chef apprentice. That was 1999. And I did two full summer holidays cooking in one of those little hotels. The beauty of it was that, you know, if you go into a five-star hotel as a junior chef apprentice, all you do is peel potatoes and, and, and yeah. garlic and, <laughs> and you don't ever get to cook. Doing it in tiny hotel with 30 rooms, they don't really have much of a stuff. So you actually got to the stove and, 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 and learn how to cook. And so that was great. It was I worked my ass off, and, but I enjoyed it. And so that sparkled the idea. I go to culinary school. I wanted to be chef. And so I entered culinary school two years later. And at the culinary school, I met a duo, a father and son, who were part of the IBA, the International Bartender Association, the Czech chapter of it. Mm. And they kind of brought me a little bit deeper into uh, the whole gastronomy world. The, the, the fact that they both, you know, grew up in it, they had to be chefs, etc., but ended up in a bartending association, I guess, turned me into the bartending mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I was kind of torn because I loved cooking and I wanted to do that. So I did a couple of cooking competitions and I still, you know, remain doing it throughout the school because A, V had to, but B, I liked it. But as well, I ended up with a shaker in my hand and... Try to explain 16, 17-year-old that you can work catering events and, and get numbers from girls. Um, <laughs> or the other option is to sit in a dungeon in in a, in a in underground uh, floors of a hotel peeling potatoes. Uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty easy to guess where I ended up. And so that's how the whole bartending career started. And so that's Czech. And I graduated from the culinary school. Went to Prague, worked in Prague for a year. At the time, flare bartending was super in. Mm-hmm. If you were not doing flare bartending, you, you, were, no were, one, you yeah. were not really considered a bartender most of the time. And after that year in Prague in a flare bar, I said, I really want to go explore and travel. And so I decided to go to Australia. I did it with my dear friend, Aneta, a great girl. She was a great, great flare bartender at the time. And we just packed our bags and left, landed in Sydney and... Four years of a great life in Sydney, working with people like George Niemek and, and Julian Serna and Mark Ward and, and, you know, you name it. Meeting people like Jason Crowley or Jason Williams, who now I'm working with here uh, with Improve. It was just, an, you know, a, a parade of mentors and, and, and great people. And, and so I've learned a ton. Ended up working in a bar called Basewater Browserie, which was at the time the oldest cocktail bar in Australia, as far as we knew. Uh, and training a uh, part-time for Behind Bars Agency, which was running the Alchemy training program for Diageo, which was, okay. I think at the time, was like four, 
four years in a row voted as the best training program uh, in Australia. But I was 23. I, only country I've ever visited was Australia. So I kind of got to the point of asking myself, do I want to sit here when I'm 40 thinking, damn, you only, you only saw one other country? Uh, or do you want to go in and, and, and see other countries and, and, and explore other cultures? And I was fortunate enough that my ex-girlfriend at the time planned this epic three months trip around Southeast Asia. And uh, she wanted to do it all the way through the markets, etc. I was making a list of all bars and restaurants and everywhere <laughs> I wanted to visit. And, and we've gone through a, 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 a silly list of Shanghai and Hong Kong and Bali and Gili Islands and Bangkok, you name it. Uh, Japan, all, all through the two main islands. And that was a great inspiration. Learning about the cultures, but eating and drinking uh, in all of the great recommendations I've gathered from all of my mentors and friends who has traveled through those parts of the world was just great and i wrote a diary about it i still have it at home it's 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 sometimes i go through it it's it's it's, it's interesting to read what me 10 years ago 10 years younger what i was interested in and and, and how i perceived flavors and 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 first time i had ramen and, and it was it was it's interesting to go through it but it was definitely a groundbreaking for me to see the cultures and at that time savoy hotel was under construction and there was this place called Covades in London, which just opened and was right away awarded as the best new cocktail bar in in UK. And so my kind of idea was I either going to go to New York or I'm going to go to London. That was the two places mm-hmm. because, you know, living in Sydney, all you can hear is like Sydney is the new kid on the block. Well, who is the old kid on the block? Well, it's the New York and it's the London, right? So I was like, well, it would be, would be amazing to get one of those after Sydney. And... New York kind of proven too hard, but I didn't explore it as much either. What was that about it? Was it the getting a visa process? Or? No, I didn't even explore it that that far. It it was more about looking into what I would have to go through and looking into being kind of illegal for a time being mm. before you you can navigate through. And I wasn't not that I wasn't interested. I was up for it, but I was standing in Europe already, and this great legendary. Subway Hotel supposed to open. Um, this is two, late 2008, early 2009. Yeah, okay. And so I, I started interviewing with Gorgeous Group, which which was in charge of the whole reopening. And Paul Mand, who was running Covadas, have visited Australia several times and Baseball Brasserie was one of his favorite bars. So I had a connection to Paul. And so basically interviewing Gorgeous Group, talking to Paul while I was exploring an idea of New York, well... I learned that Savoy was postponed by another year, at least. So I kind of gave up on that one. Uh, but Paul came through, and, and, and after the first interview, he hired me. So I was like, that was one of the dreams bars I wanted to work in. So I gave up on the New York dream for the time mm-hmm. being and, and, and go with the other city, which I dreamt about. It was London. You um, mentioned the, the Savoy. What is it that attracted you to it? I mean... It is two camps of bartenders always, right? It's the camp of people who actually gone through the traditional European hospitality culinary schooling. And that's all you hear. Like you hear about all of the famous five-star hotels. You, you hear about the Georges Seng in Paris. You hear about the Savoy in, 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 in London. You hear about the Ruffles, right, in Singapore. Um, and so, I, you know, anyone who's gone through that education would be mesmerized by mm-hmm. it because it's just a grandiose history of it right there's the other camp of the bartenders who came through the side of the story as they went to college and needed a job and fell in love with bartending and became great at it but 
at 2007-2008, no one from those San Francisco, New York, London bartenders were interested at all in, in, in a hotel bar. So most of them wouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. It was perceived as snobbish. Uh, and it was, don't get me wrong. Oh. I, I mean, it, it was, it, you know. Older people drinking boring vodka martini. Uh, it's definitely not what you know. Young progressive fresh juices playing with flavors. Uh, bartenders wanted, but because I grew up in, I went through the schooling. I did. It kind of was part of it, um, and the time started to change a little bit as well. I mean, Alex Cartiena joined at that time or soon after the Langham Artesian mm-hmm. Nomad Hotel in New York was either already open or about to open. So there was little bits and bobs of kind of hotel bars maybe potentially coming back to scene. Now it's obvious that the hotel bars are back in full force. Do you foresee a shift in the industry at any given stage in the future where hotel bars will become irrelevant? I mean, everything's moving. All industries are moving fast. Our industry is moving extremely fast. I've said that in multiple different um, occasions that we've gone through being in love with flare bartenders to hating flare bartenders to love flare bartenders within 15 years. It's what it is. But uh, I mean, look, look, look at last year or the current standing list of World's Best 50. In top 10, the five are hotel bars. And if I'm not wrong, I think the first five are all hotel bars. Yeah. It's Connaught, it's Savoy, it's Dandelion, it's Manhattan. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so I don't foresee any fast shift from that. I think that it will remain for a couple more years that hotel bars will be the front runners of our awards world. Does that mean that they are the pinnacle of all of the bars? No. In terms of how do you compare? How do you compare yeah. something like Savoy with all of the history, etc., with a tiny new standalone bar in the middle of nowhere in Czech or in Hong Kong or and, and so on? So it's hard to compare that those, but I don't think that that's what the awards are about. I mean, the awards are about to, you know, um, just navigate through us being able to judge some sort of scale, who is moving where and, and who is good at something and so on. But yeah, hotel bars, 100% are definitely in again. They have been for last 10 years, ever since ever since Connaught kind of as well. It's the one I forgot to mention, but you know, Connaught opened 2007, something like that. Yeah. But Ago and Eric opening that place, that, that was another signal of... So, but what do you think makes, uh, from an award perspective, hotels stand out? I, don't, I think it's a combination. I think that we, we I don't want to say lucky, but I think there's a coincidence as well that there is a certain amount of a talent who went into hotels at the same time. Ago, Eric, Alex, Leo Robicek in Nomad with Chris Lauder in New York and again in Nomad um, to to Philip, uh, Ricky Paiva opening Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong opening Manhattan here, Papa Charlie with his lobster bar in Shangri-La and, you know, we can, we can continue. It's just, I think that it was a, an, an, an immense amount of a people at the same time, an immense amount of great people and great talent working within hotel bars in the same era. And I think that that's what kind of striked that whole excitement about hotels. And then, you know, you know how it works. If you have if you have one hotel bar which is doing a great thing, it's hard to strike a movement. If you have several hotel bars with several leading personalities for the global scene working in the hotel bars, then that it much easier to strike the movement of, hey, hotel bars are a great thing. And so the younger generation wants to work there. All of the big brands wants to invest in them. Hotel bars are way more suited to charge more money for cocktails. So 
the big brands can actually, you know, expose the premium brands. You know, it's it's just the whole economics of it works a little bit easier in hotel mm. bars, etc., yeah. etc. Et so, do you think they have an unfair advantage compared? To no, 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 no. It's it's definitely not. I mean, everything has its pros and cons. In a standalone bar, I want to change glassware today. I will change glassware today. In hotel, I need to go through 15 signatures, 15 layers of uh, bureaucracy and and systems. And then it still can be declined. So I can't change my glassware at all. Or it's approved, but then afterwards I need can start sourcing of it. And then two months later it appears, right? So, mm. you know, in standalone bar, I jump in a car, drive to the closest shop where I found that glass, buy glass, five, five cases, and, and I have it that night. Uh, so it's everything has its pros and cons. Do you think that there are bars out there that manage to nail the sweet spot? One of the things that makes Dandelion stand out probably it's the fact that they seem to be quite flexible, and I'm wondering if that's sort of a sweet spot that they managed to find for themselves. I, I can't speak for them mm. because I have never gone through a meeting with the management of the hotel. Uh, in a hotel world, it's 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 a threefold. It's the operator of the ho- of the actual venue, if it's something like down the line. Then you have the operator, the 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 management company of the actual hotel, which would be your Four Seasons or your Mandarin Oriental or your Shangri La, etc., etc. And then you have the ownership. Uh, of the building, which has a lot to say when it comes to budgets and profitability of of, of the actual operation of the actual business. Uh, so I never gone through, and I could only speak for the companies and and projects I've personally worked on, um, like Manhattan back in the day. Uh, and it is definitely very based on who is your F and B director mm-hmm. and general manager of the hotel. If those two people are behind the project and they understand it and they want to push it. And they can push it through the ownership, then yes, then then it's easier. And I can say that you know Manhattan definitely had those two, which helped Ricky at the beginning and us as a proofing company, and then Philip and us as proof to to kind of push through uh, many different projects and programs, which which made Manhattan pretty successful. Uh, obviously, the the team has to navigate all through it, and you know it, more work. You know, it, you say a rig house; it's a great thing that Manhattan has, but the amount of hours the team Philip put into it, how much time it takes to manage it, to record everything, what is where, how long, when it was refilled, when it needs to be refilled, stock take of it, go through your procurement and finance team with stock take of such a thing as a rig mm-hmm. house. Uh, it's not easy, so uh, it's it's many many hours behind any of those projects. But if you do have a good team of the F&B director and, and the general manager of the hotel who are supportive of it, then it's definitely an advantage. We talked a little bit about Covadis. Would you like to tell us uh, what was the concept behind it and how it worked and what was your position there? Covadis, uh, um, it was a great bar. It was so much fun. Is it um, still open? It's still open. It's a members club. It's, it's, it's on a Dean Street in the Soho, right in the heart of the Soho, uh, London, UK. And... It opened 2008. Uh, I joined 2009, and it, it was the first bar I've I, I definitely I I've seen. But uh, as far as I'm aware, it was the first bar who actually had it done that way. That our ice wells were not ice wells; they were actual freezers. Um, the actual ice well. The actual oh, ice well. Your cool. station oh. was a freezer, which had a special side uh, where it was your chopping board and and all of your garnishing and your working space. It had a speed rack on it, but when you look at it, you would have to open the drawer and it was minus 17 freezer where we kept seven different types of ice and all of the glassware and everything. And so, you know, it was, this is 2009 and you would order 
Negroni, it would come on a big block of ice every single time. Uh, you would order a gin and tonic, it would come on a big tube column ice, one big long tube which filled the entire um, highball. That that was that was a big highlight of it. But in, in general, it was a members club. So it was a place where two and a half thousand, I think, members by the time I left would go and enjoy their drinks with their guests. And the whole idea or the one side of the reason why you would be a member in Covarez was that you would appreciate a fine drinking. So we always had new cocktailists every six months and it was a big enthusiasm about that from members. Uh, it was always a big party about launch of the cocktail list and, and, and so on. What was the inspiration behind the cocktail list? Because six months uh, each... It a- always varied, but it was always, it was always very based on classic okay. drinks with our own twist, which... By now, it seems overused and and, and and is a common word, but classic with a twist at that time, 10 years ago, wasn't as common thing to do. I think they're coming back, though, aren't they? I think we're moving, as you said, you know, like this shift you mentioned with the classic bartending, flair, you know, loving flair, hating flair. I think now it's started with twists and classics. We went through the roof with super weird ingredients, and now I think we're going back to... Yeah, I, I think if you look at it from the perspective of how much can one invent... Yeah, there is loads of people like Matt with Scout and Luke with Dagger and, and Tippling Club and uh, with Andy Loudon. And it's it's those people are focusing on recreating, reinventing the wheel, coming up with new ingredients, coming up with new substances, new new textures, etc. And it's great. But I think that we moved into that there is a very certain group of people who do that. And there is a generation of uh, a younger bartenders who aspire to that and wants to do it, and it's great. But then if you go to everything else, I mean, what wasn't invented? I mean, on the end of the day, even if you look at the chef's world, they are not inventing really new style of pasta in the Italian world. They're using the, you know, traditional pastas, what they, what they have, but they always season them, always prepare them, plate them differently. And I think that uh, that's the beauty of it. And I think that we're getting into phase in, in the world in, in the bars where no matter what you do, if you're an experienced drinker, you look at the drink or what it's served in, what it's made out of, and you would be able to kind of pinpoint what is the classic cocktail behind, uh, it. behind it, right? And and so, um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's natural. I think it's good. And I think it's something what if you want to run a bar where customers feel comfortable, and they then start trusting you and they, they want to explore stuff which you have under the table or a one-off or two-offs on your cocktail menu, which are a little bit different to what normal uh, cocktail would be. I think that, you, you know, it's the best way, not you need to, but the best way to start with is to if, is to get them drinks which they will understand. Um, they they will be able to grasp to DNA and the idea behind it and they will like it. So they have two, three, four of them. And then, you know, they become irregular and, and then you can start testing them on, on a little bit crazier stuff. How long have you been in Covadis? You said a couple of years? 2009, hallway until 2012. So like three, three and a half years. Three and a half years. That's a remarkable amount of time. I was always, I was always a fan of not jumping. So if I look at it, I've been in the industry since the apprentice thing, 1999. <laughs> but uh, if I look at it, when I actually started working after school, that's 2005. I worked in one bar in Prague. I did loads of part-time jobs around Australia, but my two main bars which I worked in was um, Hugo's Bar Pizza and then a base for the Brasserie uh, and Lincoln in almost four years. So that's three. 
Um, then I moved to London. I was one. And then I moved to Singapore. I was one. So in my 13 years of career, uh, I worked in six bars, uh, which I don't believe it's a small amount. Uh, I think it's a good amount. But I was always a fan of, I, I believe that it's hard to really understand and grasp what you've learned and did you get everything out of the place you worked for and did you leave everything you could for the next generation if you stay six months if you stay even 12 months is short so uh you know two three four years in one place is definitely I've, i believe way more powerful it has a bigger impact on your career and on you as a human being as a bartender than keep jumping around Agreed. It's a bit of a niche in our industry, like the fact that there's a lot of people jumping ships, but there is a strong value into, as you said, contributing to the place where you are. So what made you think that uh, Kovadis adventure was uh, was about to finish when you decided to move on? Oh, it was very natural. It was, as I said, three and a half years or so. We have pushed the uh, beverage program to the, no, I want to say limits um, in general because th- there's no real limits, but we pushed it to the level where the ownership was uh, comfortable with. And so it, on the end of the day, it was a members club. It had a restaurant. It had the, the, the members club uh, rooms and private dinings and, and then pool room and library, et cetera, et cetera. So the beverage was a, a, a focus for the, for the property, but to the level we took it to after the several years of great people who worked as Paul Mant and Marcis Zalzanes, who was just with us, I mean, with us in Singapore yesterday at, at, at Tipling Club. Um, all of those great bartenders took it to a level where it needed to be and where the, where the ownership was um, happy with to see it at that level. And they were not interested in rolling it anywhere further. And so it was just a natural movement um, where... We sat down with, with the with the ownership and we, we said, look, this is what it is. And I gave them three months notice. And uh, and that was the first time in my life I had no job planned. And that was the time where I started talking to people after first, you know, after a month and a half of the notice, I kind of started letting go the word a little bit um, into the world. And then it was, I was super excited to see what was coming back. One thing particularly, um, Mr. Arijit Boss from, from India came up with this idea of me moving to India for six months and uh, creating a training program for uh, leading hotels in India. So Four Seasons, Obroy, Tash. And that was something completely out of the world, something I have not ever think of uh, at all, moving to India for six months. I always wanted to visit, but going there and living there and training bartenders was never in my wildest dreams. And so I said yes. Uh, and I moved to India for six months. Where in India? All, uh, all over. So wow, that's a it was... Delhi, Agra, Mumbai, Pune, Bangalore, Chennai, all, all of the major cities. It was exciting, thrilling, crazy. It was six months alone as well. I mean, it's always training bartenders, mm-hmm. but I was solo traveler and solo trainer. So in every city, I would meet new people. And then so it was interesting to uh, to go through six months of, of on your own. Um, but it was I had the greatest time ever. I was lucky uh, as well because it's I was staying in those beautiful hotels. So... I had all of the luxury I needed to if I wanted to escape the craziness of the streets. But then I was training the great bartenders and, and floor staff who definitely not are the highest paid people in, in the hotel. And so they would take me today, very humble houses and, and, and the coffee shops. And so I got to see the very real India, which was very fun and full of smiles and, and, and great, actually. 
but then I needed to escape it because definitely there was a little bit of a culture shock for a, 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 so, a Central yeah. European <laughs> Czech man, although have traveled a little bit of the world. Uh, it was still a little bit of a culture shock. So even I needed to escape a little bit, I, I had just this, you know, beautiful, comfortable room with great bed in, in Four Seasons and, and so other hotels. So it uh, it was great. So you worked for six months uh, straight, no break, I guess. Straight. I had I had one week off uh, because my now wife, Melody, have came to visit me. Um, so I had one week off. But besides that, no days off. And it was not needed. I mean, it's it was just so thrilling and exciting. Um, my job was basically twofold. No one would understand a traveling bartender training. So during a day, uh, I would do, the training was break, broken down into two. It was early morning till lunch, um, was a hospitality and modern hospitality and what does it mean to be a host and bartender. And afternoon was modern technique and bar tools and, and, and how to use them. Uh, and it was always a full day for the same group of, of, of trainees. And in the evening, I would put on uh, a suit and I was the ambassador for Grey Goose. Um, oh, and uh, yes, yeah, so I, in the evenings, it wasn't every evening, uh, but most of them, I would go to different fashion shows and events, and and they would just parade me around bars to uh, to kind of shake hands and talk to bartenders and keep drinking martinis. Um, so it was a it was a full day. So it was seven a.m. up, and and most of the time midnight, one a.m. down. But uh, it was great fun, and, and the energy. Uh, you know how it is, like you, and it's not that you don't want to, you, it's not that you don't, you are not excited. If you live in London and there's all of the ambassadors living there and you have training sessions, 15 of them every week and etc. It's, 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 it's not as exciting, but going to somewhere like India, and this is again, 2012, going to some place, places like India where they don't get to see that often, it's just, you soak so much energy from it. Because it's they're just excited to see you. They want to listen to you. Um, you get to the very funny situations where people sit there smiling at you. They have no idea what you're saying <laughs> because they don't speak a word of English. Uh, but I guess they just watch you how you make drinks and and so on. So it was a, it was a couple of very hilarious uh, moments. But it's yeah, as I said, the energy of the people who are very exciting that they had opportunity to meet someone from outside India was great. When we talk about India. From our perspective as Westerners, we, we tend to bulk it up into one huge thing, right? But probably you visited so much. It's of 26 it. states. Exactly. So probably you'll, you'll have a better understanding of the regional differences that we have. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's all curry until you get to India and then you realize it's not that. And yeah, it's, they speak different languages every 200 kilometers and it's it's a mayhem. But it's, it's a colorful mayhem. Then the India thing finished. Have you thought about and staying into training or for an ambassadorial job? Or they offered me to stay for another another uh, year, actually, and they wanted to move me fully to do full training with them, etc., etc. But halfway through India, that's when I kind of closed the deal with Michael and the founders of Twenty Eight Proof Collective, and so. If I wouldn't be in India, I would be in Singapore three months earlier. But I don't like to cancel on my promises unless I absolutely necessarily have mm-hmm. to, uh, which knock on wood, I didn't have to in my life yet. Um, and so I, I asked the guys that, yeah, I can sign. I'm super excited to come to Singapore. Let's do this. But uh, I need to finish what I started in India. And so I already knew that I can't accept any offer in India because I already had signed contract here. And as soon as I finished India, 
uh, I got literally straight from Delhi. I flew here. Uh, we did two weeks of first planning. And then I flew back to UK, which I haven't been to for, at that time, seven months. I got into, I still had my room and everything in there. Were you still paying rent? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, had a, I had a Roman Foltan at oh, that really? time staying in my room. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, because he needed a place uh, to stay. But there, I within two days, I closed my bank accounts. I, I packed everything and put it on a boat, ship it to Singapore. Uh, took another plane, flew to Miami. Uh, did the same thing within four days to pack my wife now, uh, Melody. And then put it on a water and put it on a boat, ship it to Singapore. And then we both flew quickly to see my parents in Czech because I haven't seen them for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Literally for two days and then off to Singapore. How did you get to meet your wife? Huh? We, if she ever will listen to this, she will laugh because uh, we both have a very different story. Uh, okay. But the, the bottom line we agree, you know, the bottom line we agree on is that it was in Puerto Rico. Okay. I was there for Bacardi Legacy, uh, 2012 one, representing UK again. And she was there for a random holiday with her friend. And we stayed in the same hotel. And between the semifinals and the grand finale, we had a day off. And so we were all hanging out by the pool and she was by the pool with her friend. She ignored me for like two hours. I was trying to like impress her with my swimming <laughs> techniques and, uh, and she ignored me for two hours. But then uh, then I finally caught her that she looked at me uh, and that's rest is history. And, and uh, we've been married now for three plus years. What does she do? She is well, many things. Uh, she, she was a makeup artist, lifeguard. Uh, she did a fair bit of stuff, but she was pretty, pretty damn successful makeup artist for a renowned company of, uh, of, of makeup in the United States. Um, and then when she moved over here, she was looking into getting back into it here, but it was just a very different style of hospitality and makeup and, and, and so on. And uh, she became a friend with a guy who opened a little boutique gym here. So she had a little bit of a, a fitness uh, career uh, running a, a boutique gym here. Then she helped us with opening our own retail store. Uh, which is easy proof when when we added that to our portfolio as a company and now she's starting her own little business and she just finished successfully her uh, first couple of projects uh, she moved to hong kong she's based in hong kong so, so we'll see what comes out of that but mm-hmm. she she uh, departed to that whole entrepreneur world so we'll see is she into drinks as much as you are or uh she likes to have champagne or anything sparkling that's a good start anything sparkling um, so we have a little tradition that every Sunday, we, when we are together, which is not that often, but if we are together on Sunday, we open a bottle of champagne in the morning and then kind of go through it throughout the whole day. Uh, but yeah, when I met her, she was a vodka soda girl, and she has gone through the uh, she has gone through the period of drinking Negronis and and old fashions. Then she moved to mezcal and soda, um, and just recently we launched our own vodka uh, called tried and true and she's a big fan so she's back to vodka and soda <laughs> but i don't mind it that much this time. <laughs> exactly now it's good to have a brand ambassador i guess so what made you think that singapore was the next uh, move because it's uh, i mean at the time there wasn't as you mentioned we talked about it earlier on there wasn't much happening here yeah you're 100 right i mean singapore was i don't mean it in any bad way but if you say it was uh, some sort of on a map, but it wasn't. It wasn't even on a map. The the especially in a bar industry, literally Tippling Club was the only thing which was known a little bit outside 
in the world of bars and you know what i mean by that is that people who would read magazines and, and watch awards etc would know about tippling club you would go one layer below and people even bartenders wouldn't know would never mm-hmm. heard of singapore and what's what's here so yeah i got the same i get i got the face of what the hell when i told people <laughs> that i am moving from Covades from london a pretty set up well received as i said i just represented uk in legacy uh, made it a grand finals and 42 below, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But if there is a learning for me and there was a learning, it was trust your gut. It just felt right. I didn't care about how developed the scene is. I didn't care about, you know, what what's my prospect in, in terms of an, an, a beverage career. It just felt right. The, the, the founders of the company seemed like great dudes. Um, Michael was already a friend. I adored 28 since day one. It's very much my style of bar. It's very heavy on food, um, very popular and famous for food, which I, my background is a chef, and I always, mm-hmm. every place I worked for, from Covades to Basewood, Brasserie, every place was very heavy on food. But it was very much relaxed and, and, and casual uh, type of bar, which was very serious about cocktails, but not in your face on a menu talking about what techniques we use, although we have all of the machinery behind the scene and doing barrel-aged cocktails back in the day, one of the first people in this part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very, very much my style of a bar. I can't say that about technique because it was Michael and it was very American. So it was this amazing clash uh, in a funny way, but it was this amazing clash in between the European bartender with three-piece shaker and, and jiggers and and, mm-hmm. and stirring technique differently, and then and then Michael the the American shake with one hand and <laughs> and 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 only Boston shaker and and so on. But I guess that's what made it work. Uh, and so yeah, it's Singapore. Just it felt right because at the time when you decided to move, obviously you were starting to gain traction in the UK, and you know you're one of the first pioneers that moved into London and moved the scene. So when you left, uh, we all knew who you were. I, I was just in the Savoy at the time. And we were all wondering, like, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> Why is he going to sing? <laughs> I heard it a lot. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, no, it's very interesting to see that uh, you were buying into the project, right? More than the... I mean, was it's Singapore the, a place the, where I, you wanted to live? Or did you come here for 28? That's what I'm... I, I, I had no idea. It's It wasn't... It, would I want to live? I, I, I was here for three days when I was 22 or 23 as a backpacker. So yes, I knew the place is clean and I knew the place is sunny and, mm. and, and, and safe and you know, all of that you can read about. So surely uh, you must have had some job opportunities in the UK. Did oh, ton. And in States again. Um, and I, I finally had the opportunity to move to New York. Uh, I, had a, I had a job offer on, on, on the table, but none of it felt as right as, as Singapore. But at the time, Melody and I were already serious. Um, and so I called her and I said, look, I ended up moving to America, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we might have to move to New York, or I move you to the other side of the world, to Singapore. And she was straightforward and said, look, ever since I met you, we started traveling together. I, I want to travel more, so screw New York. Let's let's move to uh, Singapore. God knows where that is. Um, and so we did. Was it difficult to acclimatize to this? Uh, because this was the first time you full-on lived in Asia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. never lived in Asia before. I traveled around for three mm-hmm. months before, so I had a little bit of an idea. The The Sydney, center part of Sydney is very Asian, so I, I had to go to school in Sydney the first couple of years because 
I was on student visa. 90% of my class were Koreans, Japanese. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of, I wasn't strange to that thing. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, 28 was an exciting project. I knew Michael. Uh, and I believe that we can take it somewhere together. Uh, and so, yes, I have moved here thinking we're going to take this one little bar in, on a street in a part of the town. There's no any other bars. And and we're gonna try to make it make it great and and great and 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 get a great team of people and then we'll see what's gonna happen. But I genuinely believe we can achieve something. So that was the the driver. Um, but there was I didn't you know, I wasn't thinking about we're gonna win awards or it wasn't that. It was just the genuine excitement of of moving somewhere where it's new. The team of the guys Jeremy, Peter Chua, all of those guys were just uh, excited. Uh, to be part of 28 as well. So I was like, if I can join a team like that, it's definitely, it's going to make me happy. Um, and the prospect of project as a proof and company was exciting, although on a paper only, and, and we didn't know what's going to happen with it. Uh, so it, it's it's intangible. It's hard to explain, but it just, in your gut, if it feels right, I would always choose that, if you can. It's a different story if you have two kids and, and, and wife and, yeah. and you need to feed a family. I didn't, right? So I, I, I had the luxury of, of making decisions based on where my heart was. Traveling is becoming such an integral part of what we do, right? Yes. Uh, in terms of bartending nowadays. And you've got more and more people traveling from one country to the other. What were the initial issues that you had here in Singapore and how did you overcome those? As an advice to people who move to other countries at a very early or maybe even at a later stage of their career and, you know, they find themselves in situations that perhaps they were not expecting. Uh, I mean, it's it's it might sound abstract or not really direct, but I, you know, you, you just keep in mind that you're moving to someone else's country. You're a guest. Wherever you're moving to, uh, you're a guest. It doesn't matter that you are a great bartender or great hotelier or great restaurateur uh, from the big cities and you're moving to Cambodia. It doesn't matter. Uh, be respectful to the culture. Be respectful to those people. Go there with a mindset of, yes, I know something, but you guys obviously know your part as well. And I'm willing to share everything I know. And I'm hoping that you can learn something from it. And then we can have a dialogue about how we use it and how we move forward. Rather than coming in and saying, I know everything because I am from the big town. You're obviously a third world country. And therefore, you know, you, you got to listen. Okay. It's, it's not, you know, that's not the approach I believe you should take. And so coming in humbly as a guest, always be grateful for being able to be the guest because it's, not given that you you know get a visa anywhere or, and and that, and that people you know welcome you to the community that's that's not given um, and I think that's a good start. I always believe that when people ask me what advice would you have to, to give to bartenders where they should start, I always recommend one book and that's written by Robert Fulgham. It's uh, everything I need to know. I learned in a kindergarten. It's a tiny book. It's like two hundred pages. You will read it within three hours. It has nothing to do with bartending but it goes through a very basic human being skills and behaviors and the way how a good person should be raised that when you finish that book, you kind of be like, okay, I mean, if you follow these, you are a good person. And I believe you can't be a good bartender if you're not a good person, mm. because if you're not a good person, you can't be a good host. Um, and so being a good person to start with, and that would follow through that you know that you need to be grateful to your hosts, which is the country you are moving into, and everything else would fall in, in a line. Do you have any regrets about moving to Singapore? Would you have moved to the US or 
Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, it was a hard, long seven years, but I believe genuinely that we built something what we all had fun with to build. I married my wife throughout those years here, um, that which is a, a great memory. Mm-hmm. Singapore for me forever will be the place where Melody and I said yes to each other um, as uh, engagement. I got married in Italy, but you know we were living in Singapore when that decision was made. Twenty eight has gone from small bar in you know in 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 a side of the road where no any other F and B outlets were through all of the hard work of Michael Callahan and his team and then me joining later, going to be the I think with High Five the only bar who still holds the cheese plate from Telsiver Cocktails. Uh, we have two of them. Um, we've been on 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 the world's best fifty list ever since we. Uh, we were born, so this year, if we make it this year, it would be eighth year in a row to be in the world's best 50, etc., etc., etc. And, and you know, seeing Jeremy Chua, Peter Chua, uh, cousins, seeing someone like Ronan and Rina, seeing the amount of the people who, uh, Brandon, who is now in Operation Duggar, and, and, you know, I can, you name it, seeing all of those people who have gone through 28 and, and now they have their own great careers and, and doing great things in a, in a, in our world, in our industry. It's just, it's probably the biggest award one, one can get. So you mentioned proof. It's very interesting, the relationship between the distributors and uh, the bar itself. At what stage did you guys realize that uh, the actual distribution could take real shape and become the company that it's now? Proof was born out of necessity for, for 28. Because we were shipping retail priced product from United States to Singapore to put it on our back bar, the whole idea of starting a distribution came about. And because we saw the enthusiastic groups like Jigger and Pony starting to popping up and Cuffling Club, etc., we knew that we kind of hoped and guessed that there will be demand for it. And so that's where the idea came about. But we always kept it very separate. And so until today, and I think it always remained that way. 28 is its own standalone on its own business. It's its own registration number, everything like that. And 28 buys products from Proof & Company for same prices as anyone else. Um, there's no differenci- differentiation in between Manhattan or 28 or Atlas or bar stories. Everyone's having the same price point. Um, goes to the point where the bar manager sits down with either me or, or, or one of the uh, client relationship managers and and has a discussion about hey these guys are you know supporting us in a different way are gonna have to use those products from now on and and you know proof and company has to work hard to earn the spot uh, within 28 bag bar uh, because there is a competition out there loads of people bring loads of good products now these days you know yes first couple of years it was really majors and us uh, but now you look around and there is loads of small craft distributors mm-hmm. and importers and 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 they all have same passion as we do have you ever thought about opening another 28 uh we definitely get many people asking us that we it's i don't think it's a reason to say you know any number of how many offers we got but uh i think my opinion is the one thing the founder's opinion would be uh would be the one which counts I can't speak for them, uh, but I do believe that uh, they 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 want to have one twenty eight and and one and only. So you started with the bar, then you opened the distribution as a necessity for the bar, but then the distribution obviously took its own shape and as a very successful company. How did you decide to start to move into consultancies? I mean, consultancies was always part of it. Uh, the whole business idea was 
to open a distributor which will be disruptive. If you look at it from the perspective of distribution as a whole, how it works, hasn't changed for decades. I mean, it's, uh, you know, buy a box of a product and resell a box to someone else of the product. That's what merchants been doing for centuries. Um, you put a margin on it and that's what you do. So Proven Company was born based on being disruptive. And that's where instead of sales team, uh, that's where we have the creative team. Instead of having minimum orders, that's where we say no minimum orders. It's instead of having a cutoff time, that if you don't order by two in the afternoon, you don't get the delivery for next two days, we introduced no cutoff time and, and, and so on and so on. So it was always to be a dis- disruptive. Um, and the creative side of it was was the number one priority. And so the idea is that, that we come to you know your project and we do a, a turnkey uh, solution, come up with a concept, work with the designers, work with the hotel, work with the ownership, build it 18 months later, voila, grand opening. And then obviously the team is responsible for doing the, all of the day-to-day operations, etc. We're not responsible for any of that. So, um, but we then afterwards would be the preferred partner uh, for the distribution for that business. Now, our portfolio is very straightforward. We only have two price points. We are about fair pricing. So several products which we picked up as a master importers uh, when we opened, which were distributed by other smaller unofficial companies here, the price dropped by like 60, 70% at at certain uh, SKUs because it was just not controlled before. And then when we put that into our margin scheme, we realized we can charge half price what it's charged now and still no making what we what we wanted to make to run a successful business. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was always being based on being disruptive and, and the creative team is a huge part of the, the idea of running distribution not based on price points, but run distribution on being a partner. A person like you has had the finger, his fingers in many pies, right? So right now you have had the chance to see a lot of the trend-setting bars in this part of the world. I'm curious to hear what is it uh, your prediction for where the industry is going. Do you see any specific trend coming back or any bad trend dying off? Um, it's always a, always a tricky question. I think that we got into the situation where it's like with fashion or like with music. You can try to put your finger on where the industry is going. Um, it might be lack of experience maybe, but I always felt that it's just hard to do. Um, there might be people out there who are 100% certain that what they say is, is, is where the industry is going. I'm not sure if I'm positioned uh, to do so. Although, as you said, I do see lots of projects and bars and travel around. But I think it's, as I said, like with fashion or music, it's we got into the situation where everything's allowed. And so there's no barriers, there's no, um, there is no limits. And so, you know, it's somebody in, in Brazil is doing one thing and London is doing another thing and, and someone in Latvia is doing another thing. And with the whole internet and Instagram and Facebook, the information is shared so fast that someone in, in Latvia opening a bar which has a certain theme, it doesn't matter, then two weeks later the same bar cannot open on the other side of the world because those people like that theme or that concept. Um, but I think that what one thing what I always was very interested in was can we get out of the habit that cocktails have 15 different garnishes and it takes five minutes to put that garnish together and has nothing to do with that cocktail. And I understand the whole uh, Instagrammability 
these days. Um, and I understand that it has to be pretty to look at. But if it takes me to postpone service of that drink, I don't think that's wise. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's good for the customer. I don't think they care, frankly, that much. They would rather have the drink 30 seconds earlier. Um, you know how it is, the perception of time when you are a guest, 30 seconds seems like three minutes. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I think, and I, I can see that that trend is going down a little bit, which I'm pretty happy about. What what I would like to see, um, and I think we're going to get there soon. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but what I would like to see is the whole holistic thinking of the customer is a guest and they are there to have fun and we need to earn their trust first before we should be hitting them with our newest inventions and our deepest knowledge and, and so on. Um, it's okay to share all of that with your guest and you should have all of that knowledge. You should be educated in your industry. But there is a big difference in doing it to every single guest uh, rather than really earning your trust with a person who sits in front of you before you jump that uh, gun and, and end the war on you know speeches about what's in the drink in five-minute monologue. That doesn't mean that you know it has to take you months to create a relationship. If you know what you're doing, buy a drink four or drink three, you can have that trust. But you know it's it needs to be wanted from the guest side. Otherwise, it's completely losing the point and the guest is only being polite by trying to pretend that they're listening to you rather than they say, hey, I got an hour with my buddy who I haven't seen for a month. I don't frankly really care now about the ABV mm-hmm. or the whiskey you pour me. Cool. So I think that covers pretty much uh, everything. There is a question I ask everybody on the way out, and that is uh, if you were to choose the last drink of your life, what would that, would that drink be? Uh, that's very simple. That would be a very large, very cold, <laughs> with big head uh, pint of any type of beer, but preferably Pilsner. <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Zane. It's amazing talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, hopefully out of this uh, uh, gibberish talk, someone can get anything out of it. So. <laughs> I'm sure From my side, I mean. <laughs> Thank you very much. Ciao, ciao. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Zenek. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram, where we post our hashtag Classic Tuesday videos every Tuesday, where we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.